Well, good morning, Truett. Glad to be with you this morning. A few uh, said good morning back. That's nice. Uh, Glad to share with you this morning. I am grateful for the invitation from Dean Steele to be here today. Uh, Dean uh, Steele, who is traveling, I'm sure is checking in on us online to make sure we didn't just play hooky and uh, take the, the morning off. I'm glad you're here. Uh, thankful for the band and uh, for Jen for praying. For Matt, for the kind words that you had to say. Uh, I know it pains you to say nice things about me, so thank you. It's intimidating to take these three steps up into the pulpit at Truett Seminary. As I prepared and thought about some of the the modern greats that I've heard preach from back here, even in this semester, the the amount of tremendous preaching we've heard. I've had colleagues and friends preach and, and moved me to tears and shook me to raucous laughter. They've revealed the very will of God and the grace of Jesus Christ here in this place. So when I think about those preachers, even some of you sitting in this room, I realize quite quickly, I'm not the best preacher in this room. You're going to realize that very shortly. But so too, when I think about the brilliance and the scholarship that sits in here, In our pews, truly, we have some wonderful professors that have given their life to their subject. They produce great works of scholarship. These folks uh, have authored books that have changed the landscape of what we study. Students, you will have the opportunity to learn and read from some of these great works, mostly because they're going to require you to buy them for their class but you'll be better off for it. So when I look around the room and I see about the brilliance and the scholarship, the wisdom that sits in here, I know quite quickly as well, I'm not the smartest in this room. And when I look at my friend Adam, maybe just even Adam's shoes, I know I'm not the coolest guy in this room. So what do you do when you're not the best preacher, you're not the smartest, you're certainly not the coolest person in the room, when you've exhausted all other opportunities, when you can be nothing else, be yourself. Thus, in my case, ensuring the dean will never ask you again. Let's pray. God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 13 was just read so beautifully. Thank you, Zhao. What a tremendous blessing it is to hear scripture in in different languages. Um, it, It reminds us that this word of God transcends our cultural boundaries and what we call normative for ourselves. God's grace is big. Thank you for that. Psalm 13 teaches us to pray, like all psalms. This is an inspired word of God given to us, but this is for us to give back to God. It's teaching us how to pray, what to say, 
Maybe in a new and radical way, things that might make us uncomfortable, especially that we find here in this psalm of lament, this model prayer found in Psalm 13. It begins with this fourfold questioning of God. How long? How long, O Lord? The first even interrupted as though to make the complaint even more potent. He couldn't even finish his sentence. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How much longer do I need to live in anxiety and grief? And how long will my enemy be exalted over me? The Midrash connects these questions to Deuteronomy 16 and Numbers 14. And you'll remember this is the story of the Exodus. The people have come out of bondage, out of slavery. They've been delivered. They're making their way to the promised land. Things are going great, right? Well, not so much. The people grumble. They long to go back to Egypt where at least they knew they had three square meals. They tried to collect too much manna. And they complained about it. And so God in Deuteronomy 16 and Numbers 14 asked these questions of the covenant people. He said, how long will you rebel? How long will you have contempt for me? How long will you not believe in me? You've seen the miracles and yet you do not believe. How long will you grumble? God asked the covenant people, Some pretty serious questions. And so too in Psalm 13, the psalmist asks the same questions of God. You see, for the the faithful Israelite, this this covenant relationship is a two-way street. Yes, God has this uh, expectation for God's people, but so too do the people have the expectation that God will live up to the covenant. That they, they would lay this out. This is not the whining of people whose life isn't going the way they want. This is the powerful complaint of covenant people. Before God. A no-holds-barred type prayer. God, what are you doing? Where are you? It's a complaint that is secure in covenant relationship. You see, hope's not just found at the end. We sometimes rush and get to the end of the lament and say we know all things will work out because we get to the end of the lament, it's happy. But hope is found right here, friends. Hope is a complaint to a God that listens and hears and doesn't mind when we're brutally honest. Now, if we're being honest to ourselves, we brought some how longs into this room this morning. Now, some of them might be pretty light. I've heard you say to some in the hall, like, how long, O Lord, will Hebrew homework take me tonight? 
How long, O Lord, will it take for me to finish this paper? How long, O Lord, is Dr. Will Hyatt going to talk about Augustine? Now, before you think I'm picking on Dr. Wilhite, please understand that joke works with every professor. You say, how long, oh Lord, will Dr. So-and-so talk about X? And you're going to get a laugh every time. I just happen to pick on the big guy. But uh, we bring real things in here, too. We echo the psalmist, the struggle of our spiritual life. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? You've called me to this ministry. You've called me to this place of study in this time. But I struggle to see your face. And when I struggle to see your face, everything else gets a little bit blurry. Where are you? What are you doing? Why haven't you answered my prayers? And so, too, we also echo the psalmist, uh, not just in this spiritual life that we have and the struggle that we might share, but we, we see this lived out in our internal monologues and even in our social settings. How long, O oh Lord, will I feel anxious? Will I be filled with grief and worry? How long, O oh Lord, will I feel isolated and alone and lonely? How long until I have that place here that feels right? How long, O oh Lord, will I look at my peers and not feel the kind of same comfort and security and success that they're having? How long, O oh Lord, will it take for me to find that place in ministry that you've called me to, that you've prepared for me? How long, O oh Lord, will the money in my bank account last? How long, O oh Lord, will it take me to repay these loans? How long, O oh Lord, must I serve a tumultuous time and a tumultuous people? Good news, bad news, friends. Good news, you're not alone. And I know you're not alone because I have these conversations with you and we're saying the same things over and again. There are people in your pews across the aisle from front to back that share in these how longs. And in fact, this is a communal lament that we share this together in a chapel. The bad news is the how longs never really go away. They change. That our faculty and staff and some of us further along in our journeys uh, have how longs too. How long, oh Lord, will this family strife go on? How long, oh Lord, will financial crisis sit there how long O oh Lord must I serve a tumultuous time and a tumultuous people I remember this moment as a pastor now to be sure there were a lot of how longs throughout 
congregational ministry, but this one particular stands out. Because it was all those deep insecurities and fears that lie with us when we go to serve a people laid bare and in front. And I could tell you the weather of that day, where I stood, where I sat, where I listened. As I heard those words come from the mouth of a church person, God's not here. God's not doing anything. There's nothing good going on here. You're not called to ministry. You're not called here. And I called a mentor, a pastor. This is that how long moment. I asked a simple question. I said, can I quit yet? You see, the Psalter is instructing the reader on matters of faith. That even in these accusations against God, against this covenant God, the enemy is not the biggest problem to overcome. It's not the largest hurdle. It's the absence of God. That's the truest source of distress. The failing of God is in action. In fact, our own Dr. Stephen Reed writes, this lack of intervention, quote, will lead to the loss of integrity of God's justice. And we feel that most keenly when we can't see God moving, doing, acting. You brought, perhaps, some how longs into this room. And because Psalm 13 is teaching us to pray, we're going to take the next 30 seconds. And I want you to offer your how longs to God. Could you pray as boldly as the psalmist? Could you offer this language that is honest and forthcoming, perhaps even accusing? And maybe you came in here and you don't have a how long. Life is good. You have no lament. Well, great. These are communal. I'm certain the person in your pew or across the aisle, in your class, in your family, in your church, there is a person that you can cry out on behalf of because they have lost their voice crying for themselves. Would you do that? Our psalm moves from complaint to plea in verses 3 and 4. 
The readers offered reasons for God's intervention among the highest. It's the responsibility that God has to God's people. Oh, Yahweh, my God, is this appeal to God in his relationship through the covenant using his personal name. The psalmist is not abashed to have such a direct appeal to God's nature, but understands that explicitly in covenant is God's responsibility to the people. Consider and answer me. God intervene. Friends, this is, uh, this is radical and important for us in our prayer lives to understand because so much of our prayer lives we're seeking answers like why. We're looking for definition and resolution and restoration when we ought to be praying for divine intervention. There are problems and wounds and hurts and broken relationships that only the very hand of God can make right. That we would say, consider and answer me, God. Because this sorrow, this heaviness, this loss, this, this hurt, it threatens life. The psalmist here says, give Give light to me, lest I die. And this is a fullness of life that is being asked for here. This is related to the First Samuel story in First Samuel 14, where Jonathan tastes that, uh, that ill tasting of honey. He shouldn't have done it right, but it gives life to him. This is the same concept here that the psalmist is begging for life to be restored, light to his eyes, lest he goes to die. Proverbs 18 asks us that question. Who can bear a broken spirit? In this light, in this life, that's how the claim of the adversary is lost. Only God's intervention, only this infusion of life can restore the psalmist to this place of security. Return us to that place of security and ruin the claims of the enemy. Because these claims of the enemies, they're, they're not just upon us, but they are at the very reputation of God. It harkens back to that first section, to understand that we are in this pitiful state because God allows it. Where are you, God? What are you doing? And so this defeat's not just personal, it has theological implications. The psalmist has offered her plea to covenant God, made the case for intervention. But something important here, note the lack of acceptance of blame. In fact, Ellen Cherry writes in her commentary that despair is resisted not by dissolving into self-blame and personal agency is sustained, by calling God into account. That is a bold way to pray. Could you pray that boldly now? 
You've offered your how longs. Could you spend the next 30 seconds asking for that divine intervention, that life infusion that only God offers? Like most songs of lament, this one moves from complaint to plea to praise. We're finally to the happy part. Isn't it interesting, though, that this is the shortest section of the psalm? Oh, it could be a poetic device, and I think it's quite effective if it is. Perhaps all the energy is just spent in the first two stanzas where we have the complaint and we have the plea. So now that we get to praise, it is what we can muster a whisper and a whimper and a trust in a God that is there. The but I shifts the language of the psalm. No longer are we mired in, in the work of enemies and adversaries. But the attention is now pulled to the action of God. This verse calls us to recollect God's deliverance in the past. Offers us hope for future liberation. Trust is necessary and needed so that this song of rejoicing might be made upon deliverance. Because the fact of the matter is this prayer ending with praise is long before the Grace of God is felt. I asked that question, can I quit yet? And my mentor said, not yet. Not today. So I sat in my office there uh, pondering those questions. Where are you, God, and what are you doing? Until I got my car and I drove to a man's house, diagnosed with terminal cancer. Six months prior, a stroke that took his power of speech and most of the movement in the left side of his body. I, I sat in his living room as he grunted a prayer. Translated by his wife who had loved and stood by his side for 50 years that this bond of marriage could translate even grunts and moans into the right words and phrases. 
this man's confession of God's faithfulness in his life and God's goodness. His wife so moved, she gave her life to Jesus that day in that living room in that moment. We baptized her in our little church. And I walked out with a very clear and keen sense of where are you, God, and what are you doing? God saying, I am there offering salvation. I'm at work. I'm faithful. Your heart can rejoice because I'm doing things. Now make no mistake, my problems did not disappear. They were still ornery and mean people to deal with. They were still hurt and pain and suffering and struggle that had to be addressed and walked through and journeyed through. And it was not easy, pleasant, it was memorable. but it is a revelation of God's grace that we could look back and say, look, I know God has delivered, so I know God will deliver. That if I can see God working then, I know that God will work again. That we might sing to the Lord because he's looked after us. Our final act today is an act of praise. But I'll not ask you to do this individually. Some of us just aren't there. But rather, I would say, let's praise as the community of faith. Just like a while ago, when we don't have a limit, we offer a limit for someone else. When we have not the ability to stand and praise, our brothers and sisters rise around us and say, I'll praise for you. I will sing to the Lord. We will sing to the Lord. Because he's looked after us.